you would please stand with me and open your Bibles to the Gospel of Mark. It is indeed a privilege for me personally. This is the first opportunity I've had to preach from the Gospels. And it has been a marvelous and very unique journey and experience these past couple weeks. The Gospel of Mark, chapter 10, we're going to read verses 32 to 45. Do not worry, we're only going to cover three verses today. (laughs) Lord willing. Mark, chapter 10, verse 32, the Word of God says, They were on the road going up to Jerusalem, and Jesus was walking on ahead of them. And they were amazed, and those who followed were fearful. And again, he took the twelve aside and began to tell them what was going to happen to him, saying, Behold, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered to the chief priest and to the scribes, and they will condemn him to death, and they will hand him over to the Gentiles. They will mock him and spit on him and scourge him and kill him. And three days later, he will rise again. James and John, the two sons of Zebedee, came up to Jesus saying, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. And he said to them, What do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, Grant that we may sit, one on your right and one on your left, in your glory. But Jesus said to them, You do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? They said to him, We are able. And Jesus said to them, The cup that I drink you shall drink. And you shall be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized. But to sit on my right or on my left, this is not mine to give, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared. Hearing this, the ten began to feel indignant with James and John. Calling them to himself, Jesus said to them, You know that those who are recognized as rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them. And their great men exercise authority over them. But it is not this way among you. But whoever wishes to become great among you shall be your servant. And whoever wishes to be first among you shall be the slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. Thank you. You may be seated. God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers in the prophets and in many portions and in many ways, has in these last days spoken to us in his son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the world. And it's my prayer, my desire, my hope today as we peer into this small portion of the gospel of Mark with the much-needed help of the Holy Spirit, that we will humble our hearts and through the eyes of faith fix our gaze upon the person 
the heart and the soul and the work of our precious Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, the righteous, that we would relish his beauty and be awed by the sacrificial service done on our behalf for our eternal souls. Gracious Father, merciful Father, we come to you seeking your holy face this day. Father, we bow our hearts and our minds, our souls. We, we lay our desires, our worries, our fears, our anxieties at your feet and ask that you would mercifully and powerfully speak to us through your eternal word and revealing by your spirit to us, your glorious Son. Father, may He alone and His power and His truth transform us beyond our comprehension. Lord, may we allow Him to serve us that we might serve one another in love. Father, I I humbly ask for your Spirit's unction and power to hide me behind the cross of Christ and to let your truth shine forth. Reveal to us, O Lord, the glorious person of your Son, your beloved Son. In his name we pray. Amen. Now, I did not intentionally select this passage of Scripture because it was the season of Advent. But I can't think of a better pericope of Scripture to give us such a detailed insight into the real purpose of this season. This Christmas celebration, this season, should be a a vivid reminder of the miraculous and profound events concerning the birth of Christ. And we've all grown to love and appreciate that the amazing characters, the circumstances that are a part of this event, and its predominant spiritual significance. However, if we look at the heart, if we look at the, excuse me, if we look at the real purpose of Christmas, it is not just that Jesus came to earth. It is not just to celebrate his birth, as wonderful and miraculous as that is, but the heart is of this season is why he came. From the time that Christ was on the earth up to the present day, we hear from skeptics and religious people that Christ's life was, and especially his death, was just something common, that he was just another great teacher born long ago, and that he suffered some some unexpected misfortune. How far are they from the truth? It's the New Testament Gospels of Matthew and Luke that open with this prophecy-fulfilling announcement of why the Lord Jesus came. It was revealed by the angel of the Lord to a man named Joseph. In Matthew 1.20, it says, Joseph, the son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife, for the child who has been conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. And also to a woman named Mary, his earthly mother in Luke one thirty one, and behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall name him Jesus, or Jehovah saves. And to a number of humble shepherds working in the fields in Luke two ten, do not be afraid, 
For behold, I bring you good news of great joy, which will be for all people. For today in the city of David, there has been born for you a Savior who is Christ the Lord. This is the true and good news of Christmas, the true reason for this season, which is the good news of the gospel. And at the heart of this gospel is a person, Jesus Christ, who is also the heart of Christianity, the heart and soul of this true religion. The religions of man and of this world offer nothing in comparison. We find at the heart of Hinduism is is every man. At the heart of Buddhism is only an an inward journey of of self-discovery. And at the heart of Islam is just the Quran. But the heart of Christianity is Christ, the sovereign Lord. And the Christian religion is so much more than a set of rules, more than a set of do's and don'ts, because these are scarcely good news or even able to save us. Christianity is the good news of Christ that he alone came to save us from our sins. And this is why Mark so succinctly and powerfully begins his account in the first verse of this book, as dictated by Peter, the beginning of the good news or gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. For you see, Peter and Mark wrote this first four, first of four biblical gospel accounts as a witness document. It was a first-of-its-type proclamation to heavily persecuted and oppressed believers in Rome and Italy. It was during the middle of the first century under the reign of Nero, and Mark's clear task was the projection and purpose of a Christian faith in Christ in the midst of suffering and martyrdom. And if the believers then were to be inwardly strengthened and the gospel effectively proclaimed, it would be vital to exhibit the similarity of situation that was faced by Jesus Christ and the Christians in Rome. And this account is Mark's pastoral response. Now, in the passage before, specifically verses 32 to 34, Mark is drawing us in to be intimate spectators of this discourse with his disciples. And he's revealing to them his person, his purpose. But if we look even closer, it's also the call to the life of a disciple, to the life of a Christian. And I want us to look at these three verses today under three headings and three main points. First is the path of Christ. Second is the person of Christ. And third is the passion of Christ. First, we have the path of Christ. In verse 32, they were on the road going up to Jerusalem, and Jesus was walking on ahead of them. Can you, can you picture this in your mind? Coming towards us on this country road out, out of the wilderness of Perea, which is east of, of Jericho and Jerusalem, it says they were heading in a westerly direction on, on this upward dirt road, this highway, this path, and it, and it rose some 3,200 feet in elevation. And we see this group of men and women and, and probably very likely their children, all of them heading up in an, in an ed, upward elevated direction on their way to Jerusalem. And who is in the lead but Christ himself? The timing of this journey, according to the Gospel of John in, in chapter 11, verse 55, is that it is near the time of the Feast of Passover. 
And for Jesus and his disciples, this would be their final Passover meal together. Christ was only a few weeks away from his foreordained death. And here in Mark and the other gospel accounts, we see that the way of the path they were on was not only a highway up to Jerusalem, but it is a type of the way that leads up toward heaven. It is the way to the culmination of this predetermined journey that only Christ can and must forge as the Son of Man and as the Lamb of God. And it is also the way for all who will enter into his kingdom. Just as there was an appointed way up to Jerusalem, so there is an appointed way up toward heaven. Now for Christ, this upward path was a path of utmost humility. It was a path of perfect holiness. It was a path of perfect obedience. It was a path of his final Passover, the path of the final sacrificial lamb. And it was the path of finished atonement. And amazingly, this path, this way was prophesied and its type was foreshadowed by Moses in Exodus 32.30 where we see Moses going up to the Lord God in order to make atonement for the sins of Israel. He was acting as a mediator for the people who had just sinned wickedly after coming out of Egypt. Now, it's not sufficient for us just to know that there is a way or a path to heaven these days. They say there's many roads to heaven. But as Matthew says in in chapter 7, verse 13, we are to be in that path. We are to enter through the narrow gate. For the gate, the path, the highway is wide and broad that leads to destruction, and there are many who enter through it. But the gate, for the gate is small, and the way is narrow that leads to life, and there are few who find it. For this is the teaching and the repetitive reminders to us from both David's testimony in the Psalms and the revelation of true wisdom in Proverbs, that there are two ways in life for everyone born into this world, one of sin and rebellion, foolishness and ultimate destruction, and the other of forgiveness and godly righteousness and spiritual vitality and eternal life. Psalm 25 in particular shows us this way of the Lord and of being in the Lord. And note carefully, it says, this is for the sinner who by faith knows a righteous fear and humility in his heart as one in the way of life. The Lord's call from the outset of his ministry on earth was for those to enter into this way, into this life through repentance and faith. In him. And this is how any of us are able to go beyond just a mere knowledge of a way and come to a true experiential, experimental awareness and life of being in the way of being in the person of Christ. Not a path of pleasure and comforts and ease at the whim of our fleshly desires, but one of trial and testing and difficulty. Oh, but one of ultimate indescribable glory and joy in the presence of the Lord. Now, with this in mind, let's look at the person of the way, the person of Christ. They were on the road going up to Jerusalem, and Jesus was walking on ahead of them. And they were amazed, and those who followed were fearful. 
This is the only place in Mark's where it specifically states that Christ was leading the way. What do we see in this? Fear, hesitation, uncertainty? Absolutely not. Christ is in complete control of his journey. He has determined when and where they are going, the route they are taking, the place of their travel, the conversations that they will have, how they will deal with the distractions of the Pharisees, how they will deal with the opportunities for ministry on the way. He is the master and the fearless one who leads them as mediator and captain of their faith. And above all, he knows why he is going And he is going with a resolute conviction and assurance. We also see in this verse that there were two groups of people following Jesus. It says that there were those who were amazed and those who followed were fearful. And it was the closest 12 disciples who were amazed and the other disciples and followers who were not quite sure where and why they're going back to Jerusalem to face persecution. Could the reason for the disciples' amazement and fear and the other follow, fear and the other followers be due to something in the Lord's stride, his, his mannerism, having this determined boldness with a solemn joy? Don't we see in Isaiah how he prophesied concerning Christ in chapter 50, verse 7, where it says, For the Lord God helps me. This is speaking of Christ. Therefore, I am not disgraced. Therefore, I have set my face like flint, and I know that I will not be ashamed. And in the parallel account of Luke twelve fifty, Jesus is speaking to the following crowds, where he says, But I have a baptism to undergo, and how distressed I am until it is accomplished. It says Christ was pressed by the urgency of his time. He was absolutely determined in fulfilling his Father's will. You see, it's not just that they are on the road heading into Jerusalem with some uncertainty of what may happen to them. But what awakens this amazement and the fear is the person of Christ himself. It is the divine power of the Lord going before them as they consider just how he fully controls his own destiny and the will of his father. Yes, they have seen his demonstrated power in in healing the sick and casting out demons, teaching with authority beyond the scribes and the Pharisees, and even themselves declaring him to be Christ, the Son of God. Yes, this was an air of majesty and authority that would amaze them, but but now for this Son of Man and Son of God to be heading directly into known persecution and death stirred up a sheer amazement and fear. And in the expeditious style of Mark, we have a a seemingly abrupt change where Christ suddenly seems to stop to draw and gather his closest disciples to himself. Whether because of their facial expressions or demeanor or more likely Christ knowing the condition of their fainting hearts, but notice the Lord's condescending humility and love as he takes them aside, as he as he gathers them to himself. Much like what it says in Scripture, the way a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, and he begins to teach them. He begins to counsel them and instruct them. He begins to explain and demonstrate his love as a caring shepherd. And in taking them aside to himself, he is, in a sense, narrowing the way 
bringing close his chosen. But in this, he's refocusing their hearts off of their own amazement and onto himself. Do we see his, his care and intimacy in gathering his disciples closer to himself? How else would they be able to know exactly what is about to happen and understand his authority unless the sovereign Lord would reveal it to them? How else are we to grow in intimacy with the Lord unless we draw close and hear from him and his word to sit at his feet? And from Mark's use of and again in verse 32, this is not the first time the Lord has done this. This is not the first time he's stopped and explained what is going to happen to him. In both Mark 8.31 and 9.31, we find that Christ had taken them aside and told them before what was going to happen, eventually happen to him in Jerusalem. But the difference is that with each explanation, with each drawing closer, he gave them more information, more details as the time approached, and each with increasing fervency. As a caring shepherd, a loving shepherd, he wanted them to understand because this concept of a dying Messiah was completely foreign to the twelve. They didn't understand the first two times that Jesus Jesus explained it, and now this third time, He was preparing them both to perceive the fulfillment of prophecy regarding his suffering and to clearly convey his sovereign control concerning his purpose of going to Jerusalem, of the suffering and the vindication that was soon to take place. We'll look closely or closer into this the next time, Lord willing, but besides their lack of understanding and what Christ was saying to them, They had a completely distorted view of what the Messiah was to accomplish, what they thought the Messiah was to accomplish. They didn't perceive him as one having humility and meekness and a purpose to die, but one of power that would powerfully establish his kingdom on earth to free the nation from the powerful, from the the captors and the rulers under the Roman authorities, vindicating his people. And it's obvious from this verse and the parallel accounts that the disciples had not yet come to terms with the dreadfulness of the fall of man, the depth of his wickedness and what was necessary for his redemption. And this is what brings us to our third heading, the passion of Christ. We've had, we've looked at the path of Christ leading up toward heaven, the person of Christ and his love and shepherding. And now the passion of Christ and the Lord's use of behold here in verse 33. This interjection of look, see is a very clear call to attention on what is about to be conveyed. Christ's timely discourse was to awaken the disciples to the scale and extent of what was going to happen in a way to emphasize that nothing was to be avoided and that nothing was unforeseen. Jesus kept back nothing. He was not going to be and never had been a victim of his circumstances. He disclosed in the most progressive and shocking detail that his journey to Jerusalem was going to end on a cross. And behold, he says, we are going. Yes, we, not just I, but we. They were being called to follow in solidarity with him. They were being drawn into his life to a degree that they had not fathomed. 
They had been chosen for this. Where Christ is, they are going to be in his sufferings, in his tomb, risen on the third day. Yes, and seated with him in the heavenly places. They are going to be united with him from now on. At least 11 of them would be. And all the other allusions to his death in the other gospels, some of them more mysterious than others, were given by Jesus from the beginning of his ministry. It was not an eventuality to which he merely mentally prepared himself to realize that failure was inevitable. No, it, it is very important, important for us to know that Jesus voluntarily, purposefully, joyfully laid down his life for chosen sinners. When he hung impaled and immolated on the tree, he was not simply a helpless victim. He was yielding himself, body and soul, to God, actively reconciling God to favored sinners. He knew that his dying was a weapon which he was wielding to accomplish our redemption and crush the head of the serpent. He was not simply suffering the will of God. He was doing the will of God. The cross was not a martyr's stake. It was a theater of war. It was the scene of a mighty spiritual conflict. Incalculable and measureless spiritual power was being wielded on that cross. Sin was being rendered impotent. Death was being destroyed. The rulers of the darkness of this world were being routed and overthrown. Jesus made his predictions with a vivid clarity actually bringing forward into his time and himself the prophecies that were proclaimed by Isaiah in chapters 52 and 53. I encourage you in this time of Advent, stop and read and meditate on those chapters. For in these predictions, we have seven events that make up the content of our third and final point of the passion of Christ. I want to look at each of these individually. Jesus says, we are going up to Jerusalem. Men of Nazareth had attempted to throw Christ off a cliff, but it was not to be. It was contradictory to the plan and word of God that a prophet would perish outside of Jerusalem. And it was during one of the Lord's previous two visits that he had told, Jesus had told Nicodemus that the Son of Man must be lifted up. He must be lifted up before the whole Jewish nation so that they may see whom he, they have pierced and also by whose stripes they could be healed when Jerusalem sinners repented at Pentecost. This was the place of the temple where all sacrificial lambs shed their blood. Number two, the Son of Man will be delivered. As Jesus said these words, Judas Iscariot was facing him with the other 11 disciples. He was deliberately chosen by Jesus himself, knowing full well that he would betray him and deliver him over to the Pharisees for a mere 30 pieces of silver. The Lord knew that the seeds of betrayal were there in Judas's heart as he listened to the master. And it would be from among the master's own ranks where he had mercifully extended pastoral care that this hatred would eventually explode. Does it surprise us that one of our own friends has turned against us because of Christ? 
Judas betrayed with a kiss the very loveliest, the very best for all that he had seen in the very Son of God in order to destroy him. As Jesus spoke of his betrayal, there was put before Judas an opportunity to convict him of his sin so that he might turn from his ways and repent, but it was not to be. Third, to the chief priests and scribes, they will condemn him to death. Instigated and urged by these leaders, the mobs would join in and cry out two of the most heinous words through the embodiment of mercy and grace and love. Crucify him. The very men of the chosen nation of Israel would, who would be expected to prepare the way for the Messiah, who should have recognized the prophecies at his birth, who should have welcomed him in humble obedience, were the ones who hounded him, hated him, and condemned him to death on a cross. These were the religious leaders and high priests who said that one man must die for the people. The scribes and lawyers of the law who knew and even added to the law as a means for prosecution. The Lord had suffered through their many annoyances and tricks throughout his life and ministry. But now nothing would satisfy them but his death. Fourth, and will hand him over to the Gentiles. Since the religious leaders of Israel had no authority to condemn a man to death on the cross, these chief priests, these teachers of the law, handed over the Messiah to the Gentiles to a Roman form of execution that will nail him to the cross until he died. We must be careful to make this distinction here. There was not a particular race of people alone responsible for the death of Jesus. Even though the Jews cried out in Matthew's account, his blood be upon us and our children, it does not mean that every generation of Jews from that time forward are are responsible for the crucifixion of Christ. No, it was not the Jews or the Romans who nailed him to the cross. It was our sin. It was my sin. It was your sin. The sin of every true, true child of faith, and it was by the plan of the Father. Fifth, they will mock him and spit on him and scourge him. The innocent lamb of God first suffered a degrading humiliation at the hands of the Roman soldiers. They mocked Jesus, dressing him up in a purple robe, putting a reed in his hand as if he it were a scepter, and forcing a crown of thorns into his head and skull, and they bowed with laughter and derision at his condition that the Lord was not phased. He never responded in a reviling word or action. So they began to spit on him, clearing their throats in contempt and covering the Son of God with their spittle. The climax was discouraging, which was usually a single form of extreme punishment so severe it would rip away large pieces of flesh with each blow, usually ending in death. In all this, the Lord knew how he would suffer and the extent of his sufferings, and yet he continued to endure because of the joy set before him. Yet there at the heart of all this betrayal, arrest, plotting, and false accusation, the carnage and blood, an eternal plan of sacrifice, substitution, 
and propitiation was being made for those who did not know what they were doing. And they killed him. And despite many distorted accounts, Jesus did not just lose his consciousness on the cross, only later to revive himself and then push away the stone, emerging with some claim to have risen from the dead. He was nearing death as he was going up to Golgotha with no strength to carry his own cross and then to have nails driven into his hands and feet, hanging and suffocating while he bore the eternal weight of righteous wrath from his father and to finally have a spear thrust into his side where he himself declared it is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. It seems the cross in our day has lost its sense of dread and shame. It has become some religious ornament, a type of of ecclesiastical trinket. But under the first century Roman rule, the cross and crucifixion was the most dreaded and feared form of public execution, only used for the worst criminals. It was utterly offensive and something so grossly barbaric and an obscene form of crucifixion and punishment. And the message of the cross did not initially register with his disciples. This was reserved for a later time with the help of the Spirit's revelation to understand the fullness of its purpose and glory. And as glorious his final prediction, and three days later he will rise again. Jesus' final four words in this pericope of assurance was assurance to his disciples are not just a simple hope that things will be made well, but are the glorious light and life that shines beyond the darkness of his passion. And this, his passion, his suffering for their souls and for ours. These men could not prevent his death, and they were just as impotent to provide his coming back to life. All they can do now is allow his words to smite them in the reality and the purpose of his death so that they may be bound up, healed, and raised to newness of life in his final words. Before we close, I think it's very important to understand that these seven predictions by our Lord were not merely a checklist or a shopping list of events that he just easily rattled off. Now, behind and within these precious words, these predictions of Jesus was the eternal plan of the triune God coming to fruition before these men. It was wrought within and through the God-men by a great struggle and the fruit of much prayer. The graphic agony of our Lord in Gethsemane makes it profoundly clear that the prospect of his death, of his taking the cup of wrath, of suffering through That momentary forsaking by his own father because of our sin was devastating and crushing. Jesus sought out in deepest, most earnest fervor that if it be at all possible and consistent with the purpose of our redemption, that this cup may be passed, that he might be spared. So I have to ask if the only Lord of glory who held a conscience void of sin is appalled at the prospect of death. 
then what does the valley of the shadow of death hold for any who are ungodly and refuse to bow to the Savior of our souls? This upward singular path that leads to life is a narrow path. It is found only in and through Jesus Christ, and it is through the grace, the gift of faith, and by repentance from our sin, from our wayward life on the broad way that will only lead to destruction. And it has been made possible on behalf of chosen sinners through the great suffering of the only Lamb of God, whose shed blood was worthy enough to cleanse us from all our sin in satisfying God's righteousness and freeing us from the bondage of sin, giving us eternal life, eternal fellowship, in peace and true love with the triune God, transforming our hearts to love the Lord, to love our enemies, to love one another in his church. This is why Christ was born. I'd like to close by reading an excerpt from Octavius Winslow. Hope I can get through this. It's called A Sight of Sin and a Sight of Jesus. We can only properly deal with sin as at the same moment we personally and closely deal with Jesus. A spiritual sight of the one object apart from believing the sight of the other will plunge the soul into deepest despair. A sight of atoning blood must accompany the sight of our guilt. Seen and dealt with alone, disassociated from the Savior, our sin is the darkest and most appalling object that can engage human study. But God... Oh, I love those two words. But God has met the case graciously and marvelously. The instrument that exhibits sin in its greatest blackness exhibits it in its fullest pardon at the same moment. A sight of sin and a sight of Jesus as presented in the cross are found in no other spot in the universe. Nowhere, not upon earth, where its ravages are vividly and fearfully traced, not in hell where its punishment is fully and eternally endured, is seen as in the light of Christ's cross. God's hatred of its nature and infliction of its penalty as exhibited in the soul sorrow and bodily suffering of his beloved son is a demonstration unsurpassed, yea, unparalleled, Oh, how great the love of God is to provide such a mirror in which to see at the same moment the enormity of sin and the completeness of its forgiveness. There is but one being in the universe who concentrated upon himself so much sin, yet he knew no sin, and in whom we met so much punishment of sin as Jesus, the sin bearer of his church. What defective views and realizations have we of this truth? How shallow our sounding of its infinite depths? How faint our experience of its preciousness and power? Yet it is all and everything to us in this momentous matter of our comfort, holiness, and hope. 
If Jesus did not bear my transgression and curse, he did nothing for me. And I am yet in my sins. If he did, then the load is gone. The burden is annihilated. All transferred to him and by him born into eternal oblivion. I no longer, excuse me, I am no longer my own sin and burden bearer. My sins were all laid on Jesus, not by my hand, but by the hand of God. Since Jesus has cared for my sins, then my only care should be first to realize their full pardon and then to walk soul holy as not to recommit those sins that Christ bore. In light of this being Peter's message to Mark as he dictated the inspired truth from Peter, I'd like to close with 1 Peter 2, 21 to 25. For you have been called for this purpose, since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you as an example for you to follow in his steps, who committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in his mouth. And while being reviled, he did not revile in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats, but kept himself, but kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. And he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. For by his wounds you were healed. For you were continually straying like sheep. But now you have returned to the shepherd and guardian of your souls. Let's pray. Oh, eternal Father, how unfathomable are your riches to us in Christ. Lord, have we barely scratched the surface. But, oh, Father, we thank you. We look forward to the eternity of eternities to behold, to ponder, to experience Lord, no longer by faith, but by sight, the eternal wonders of your Son. But, Father, how we thank you, we praise you, we glorify you for the work that you have accomplished and finished through him. Lord, may we come each day expectantly, desiringly, with great hunger and thirst to know him more, to love him more, to glorify him more, to enjoy him more. And to cast upon him, Father, all the worries, the fears, the doubts, the things of this world, to know because you say, Lord, we know, we believe that you care for us. Thank you, Father, for the salvation of our souls. And, oh, Father, how we long and look forward to the day to be eternally in your presence. Glorify your word and your son in this, Father, and transform us into the likeness of his image. In Jesus' holy name, amen.